The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'll be your host today. Beth Heaton, the regular host, will be back next week. Now on to today. Are you a high school student who knows colleges prefer students who are involved? But hey, you aren't a joiner. So what do you do? Listen in as we'll have advice for students and parents of those students who aren't attracted to traditional high school activities. Then for segment three, we'll find out about differences in financial aid from state to state. But first, we'll be talking to Kimberly Aselta, a college coach, educational consultant, and former admission officer at College of Holy Cross and Babson College. Uh, We'll be talking to her about applying to college as a school, as a student who has been homeschooled. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much for joining me here today. All right, so let's start with what is homeschooling. I mean, I feel like it's something that most people is going to know what it is, but let's maybe we could start there just to make sure we're all on the same page. Sure. So I'll say, too, that when I started in college admission, maybe about 15 years now, it was pretty unusual, right, to see a student that wasn't coming out of a traditional public or private high school. Um, But as I worked more in admission, and right before I left Babson, it was, you know, we saw a couple of homeschool students in every pool of applicants each year. So homeschool students, are, it, there's a couple different ways where students can do this, but they're not traditional students going to, like I said, a public or a private school. Um, they're, they're many times taught at home, sometimes by parents, sometimes they're enrolled in an online high school, but it's a very untraditional path for students. Mm-hmm. And so what do, um, well, so first let's start. So basically these are students who don't attend a traditional high school. They stay at home, and as you said, it's parents or maybe some other method of school. Right. But they're not going to high school with everybody else. All right, so what then, I mean, how is a college supposed to evaluate a student who's been homeschooled when the transcript is so important, the high school transcript is so important for a kind of a, let's just say, regular student? And I think I, if colleges are realizing that there are more students that are being homeschooled now. So you'll notice that many schools have homeschool policies to sort of help students figure this out, exactly what do I need to prove that I'm ready for college. And as we take it back a step, when, we're, when we were evaluating applications as admission officers, we always went back to, is this student academically prepared to come to my classroom at the college level and succeed? But that can be hard for, for homeschooled students to, to show. So beyond what a traditional student would show, like a transcript, we 
very often we're relying pretty heavily on SATs, ACTs, standardized tests to show mastery of those subjects. A transcript in the traditional form may not be something that students can provide. What I found really helpful, and this only really applies to homeschool students, is when in this process, maybe more information is better. That's not usually what we say in admission. <laughs> Less is usually more. Mm-hmm. But more can be better on the homeschool side. I remember homeschooled students that did a really good job of providing a syllabus for me. What were you learning? What were you being taught? What, what, were, the, what were you reading you know, in English class? What were the novels that you were reading? What were you expected to get out of that? If you were in a science class, what types of lab experiments were you doing? So really trying to understand what this curriculum was and what the student was expected to master to receive that grade can be really helpful. AP exams, SAT subject tests, just, again, sort of prove that you've mastered um, each of those subjects can be really helpful because grades, it was hard to say. You know, if, if mom is your teacher and mom is giving you an A, it didn't really have the same um, effect as, as an A would at a traditional high school. Mm-hmm. Also, and I imagine courses online, um, where maybe there's somebody else grading. Maybe you send your papers and your exams somewhere else, and you get a grade back. That can be helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's get. Let's actually get more into that. So, what are? Um, I mean, do you have some kind of specific ideas of paths that a homeschooler could use? Um, to achieve those requirements? I mean, you've kind of generally talked about AP exams, essay subject tests, but what are some specific options that a homeschooled student might, might uh, you know, take advantage of? So some homeschool students go straight to a community college, take some community college courses, BYU online program. There are some online programs as well that students can take advantage of. One thing, too, that I'd like to mention is, at least when I was at Babson, we required that we had some sort of documentation that the student had graduated or would graduate high school. So when you're thinking, of, if you're thinking about homeschooling your child, there's a couple ways to do that. Probably the easiest way is to sit for the GED exam and receive that as certification that you graduated high school. Some other school districts might allow you to show what you, what you plan to cover in the homeschool curriculum, and they might bestow a high school diploma on you, and so they might sort of certify that, that homeschool plan that you have. So just thinking about ways that you're going to be able to prove that you've graduated high school is going to be a big thing as well. Mm-hmm. All right, and let's go back. You mentioned BYU Online. I'm familiar with that program, but maybe not everybody is. So what does BYU stand for? And um, tell, tell me a little bit about BYU Online and if there are other programs like that. So I'm, I'm actually not sure exactly what programs are all out there like that, but I think people really need to make sure that they're really researching. You know, why are you planning to do homeschooling? What do you hope that your student achieves from that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and BYU, um, I mean, that's actually Brigham Young University, and they actually have a full high school program. I think there's another program called Laurel Springs as well, um, which some people take advantage of. Um, But I think your point about why are you being homeschooled is an important one, because I know that when I worked in college admissions, I really, I actually did want to know why a student was being homeschooled. 
Um, and there's that a lot a, of different reasons for it. There's a lot of different reasons for it, certainly. And that was a big thing, too. Again, more information in this process can be better. So I was always interested in why a family had chosen to do this. There was lots of different reasons. I knew a student that was a pretty advanced athlete, um, a, a figure skater, and was taking a lot of time to train. Um, and just school wasn't, wasn't fitting into that, but was really concerned about academics as well. So was able to, to be homeschooled so that she could also fit in her training. So that was a reason. Some people do it for athletic reasons. Other people do it because, you know what, the traditional system just isn't working for my child. So that was really important. I would say, too, an interview, if you can, at the schools that you're planning on applying to, if they offer interviews and you think that your student can do well in an interview, that can be really helpful, too. I was Of the students that I saw that were homeschooled, I was typically pretty impressed with them when I sat down with them. And that can help dispel some of the myths out there about homeschool students, too. You know, that they haven't really socialized with a lot of students because they're not in class with them. And you, that's one of the things that you can sometimes worry about as a college admission officer. Okay, this student has been alone studying. How are they going to do at my school that might have more of a hands-on program, requires group work, that type of thing? So an, an interview can certainly help you to just put yourself out there for an admission officer, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I, I worked with a student at the University of Chicago when I was an admissions rep there. And I can't remember why she homeschooled, but um, but she not only did she make sure to take every advantage to uh, talk to me, you know, I did a presentation in the area, she made sure to go, those sorts of things. But one of the things that impressed me is not only did she take community college classes, but she was actually very involved extracurricularly. So, for example, she had found a homeschooling debate league, and so she was a debater, which, you know, right. an activity like that immediately dispels the perception that this is someone who can't talk to other people or be around other people. So um, Exactly. So th- yeah, and I, I've seen other students who, you know, maybe did community theater. Um, you know, some activities are hard to get to, especially I've seen some homeschooled students who were uh, from rural communities, and so the local high school, in all honesty, didn't offer advanced enough courses for them. And so, um, you know, f- so activities could be tough too, but they did find something in the community for them to be involved in, even if it was just a job. But that activity was crucial. Absolutely. Getting involved is sort of the next step in this, too. Academically, we want to make sure that students can be successful at the college level, but college is a community, and we want to make sure that the students can be successful there, too, and making sure that homeschool students are still out in their community and really taking advantage of the flexibility that they have as homeschool students. So, Another really neat example um, is a student that was really interested in history and also in writing and was able to take advantage of the fact that she was available <laughs> throughout the day mm. to go in and work at a local museum. And she actually helped to curate some of the exhibits and wrote about that and was really able to then show something pretty cool to the admission office when she was applying and using that time to really dig deeply into something she was very, very interested in. So some high schools, too, the districts will allow students to participate in athletics or clubs, even if they're not um, 
at the school, you know, but they live within the district, so that's something to think about, too. Can you still run on the track team or play for the soccer team, even though you're a homeschooled student? Making sure that mm-hmm. those students get involved in their community is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so I think we've kind of been touching on this anyway, but what's going to be especially important at a highly selective college or university? I mean, you know, Babson certainly falls into that category. So, um, yeah, why don't you sort of tell me about what were some of the academic things that the student did, maybe specifically, that helped them qualify to get into Babson? So at a real basic level, I mean, make sure that you're doing what we'd expect from all of the other high school students, right? Five solid academic classes, which we always talk about. Um, making sure you've got four years of four years of your math, four years of English, four years of science, English, um, foreign language. Making sure that you're keeping up with all of that. Um, taking courses at the highest level that you can take. Another big thing too, um, recommendations are required, especially at selective schools, as part of this process, and getting recommendations from non relatives. If that's someone that you are doing research for, you know, the, the girl that I had an example for that was at a museum, maybe someone there that can talk about um, who she is and what she can add to the campus. But trying to get someone that's not a relative to recommend you is, and an academic recommendation is, is going to be pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um, making mm-hmm. sure that you're able to communicate well the things that you've done in your time, if that's research, if that's a part-time, part-time job, uh, if that's debate, you know, making sure that you're really able to communicate that well. And that's not different than what we're expecting from other students either. I think I mentioned this before, but the interview, if it's available, can be key as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Um, and so what are some of the pitfalls? I mean, you, you already mentioned one, a big one, which is recommendations from parents. I mean, I would see recommendations from parents, and there just is no way to take it seriously. Right. Another pitfall that I would see is, you know, you'd see homeschool students who were brilliant writers, but really kind of topped out at Algebra 2, which is fine for a lot of schools, but it's not high enough for, you know, University of Chicago. And so it's like, because they were homeschooled and they had so much choice, they didn't always push themselves in the area, in the areas where maybe they didn't enjoy the subject as much. Was that something that you found? That's definitely something I found. I think also just not having the proper documentation. You know, honestly, when we think about college, we're sometimes not thinking about that till 11th grade. And we need to see what your student did, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, and then families are maybe scrambling to actually have some sort of a transcript, actually create a syllabus, actually go back and think about what is it that we taught you in ninth grade and what did you learn? So being organized and also I think making sure that you understand that the schools need to have some sort of policy and they need to have some concrete information about you. So when I mentioned the GED earlier, I remember a couple of families that I was talking to that they weren't really happy that we were requiring that, that we were requiring either a GED or a diploma because that just wasn't, wasn't something they had thought about, wasn't something that they thought they should have to do, and that kind of was a, a roadblock for them if they weren't willing to do that. So planning early, making sure that you're looking, maybe even doing research earlier than we would typically work recommend for students. Start to think about what schools you might want to end up in, universities and colleges, and start to see what they're requiring, and do they have a homeschool policy? That can be a a good place to start. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I mean, there are some colleges that I think welcome homeschoolers. I know Liberty University in Virginia, I checked their yep. website, and they have some pages on yes. what to do if you're a homeschooler. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that's what yeah. we did, too. You know, we didn't see a lot of students, but we did create a policy, and it's right there on their website. So mm-hmm. making sure that you are aware of all of the things. And different schools are going to require different things, might be a little bit more lenient about things. And it's not always cut and dry. There's a lot of different ways that students are homeschooled, but making sure that you, you keep track of all that documentation and you understand what schools are, are looking for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and one thing, I know that one of the pitfalls for some students is that they'd kind of gotten out of, you know, they'd gone into homeschooling and gotten away from traditional schooling because they didn't like all the testing. And so some of them were sort of dismayed when I said, well, I'm sorry, but we need some way to evaluate you, and that means subject tests in, in addition to the SAT or right. the ACT. So we weren't flexible on that, and, and most families got it. I want to be very clear that most families got it, but a few families thought, well, can I just write you a paper? It's like, no, because I, you know, I can't measure your strength in calculus with the paper, and I don't know if you wrote the paper yourself. You probably did, but I don't know right. for sure that you did. Unfortunately, testing does tend to be pretty important when it comes to evaluating homeschool students. Mm-hmm. I will say that when I was at Reed, it was a long time ago, but we got a decent number of homeschooled students. And really the successful ones um, who, who were able to get through without a hitch were students who essentially had done their last year or two of high school at a community college. And then we didn't have any problem feeling like we could evaluate them fairly and you right. know see what they could do. Um, the pitfall there was that sometimes they still didn't get as involved in extracurriculars as they needed to. So I just want to emphasize if you're at the community college, take advantage of those extracurriculars or, you know, do some in the community, but you're still expected to do that. Right, right. Yeah. All right, so we only have one minute left. So any, um, any last thoughts? I mean, I think we covered the subject fairly well. There's so many individual cases that I don't, you know. I think certainly- that's, a, that's a big thing. There's definitely individual cases. I think a co- one or two things, it certainly doesn't make the process easier for families, right? but it can be a really neat thing for students to do if you do it the right way, right? If you've got all the documentation, if you're organized, if you understand what colleges might be interested in seeing um, from the application standpoint, I really think for the right student, it might not be, uh, you know, it could be a really neat opportunity for them to take advantage of things that maybe the traditional high school hours are keeping them from. Mm -hmm. So... But it is something you really want to think about. Definitely can't just jump into it. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it means a lot of extra work for the parents as well. And I think that's important to note too. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Kimberly. I um, I, I think we've covered it now. So thanks again. Sounds good. Thanks, Sally. All right, so we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll be talking about non-traditional activities for students who aren't joiners, who don't like those traditional school activities. Thanks. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. 
Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before the break, our next segment is regarding non-traditional activities for students who aren't joiners. Luckily, here to help us is Pete Silberman, a former admissions officer at, with the University of Pennsylvania, a former college counselor at Harvard Westlake School in the Los Angeles area, and a current educational consultant with College Coach. Welcome, Peter. Thanks, Sally. Great to be here. Okay, thank you. All right, so this segment, I mean, just to repeat it one more time, it's about extracurricular ideas for students who don't want to participate in the traditional school activities. You know, maybe, um, you know, when you're sitting down and talking to these students and you say, what do you do extracurricularly? They go, I don't know, nothing looks interesting to me at the school. So, right. you know, what do you say to those students? And But maybe we should actually back up first and say, what do we mean by traditional activities? What are the activities that these students are saying they're, they don't want any part of them? Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I think you've touched on it a little bit. We, when admissions officers think about traditional activities, I think they're talking about the opportunities that exist at most high schools, things like sports, uh, student government, uh, maybe academic competitions, whether it's debate or math competitions, science competitions. Those are, I think, what most people would consider traditional in-school activities. Mm-hmm. And so what should, so let's say a student doesn't want to do any of those. What, you know, um, what can they do? And uh, will colleges still value those non-traditional activities? Yeah, I think, I think it's a great question. And, you know, it, it seems to me that, from my time working in high school and, and watching kids navigate these choices from the admissions end, that it seems like there are more and more students wanting to get involved and potentially, you know, the same number or fewer spaces to do it. So sometimes it's not even interest so much as opportunity. Um, and I think that the key is, you know, 
just because you may not want to get involved in a particular activity doesn't mean you can't get involved or you can't develop an interest. Um, so the conversations that I've had with students usually start around um, what are you interested in? What, what do you like to spend your free time doing? Um, you know, I think that kids will always say, you know, hanging out with friends and, and things like that, that's fine. But if there's things that you like to learn about or things that you like to get involved with or just enjoy doing, um, that's, a, that's a great place to start thinking about how to develop an interest is just starting with the interest itself. And then similarly, sometimes if, if that question, if that line of questions is, um, is still a little bit of a roadblock, then I might start looking at the places where the student has had some some agency or some choice over decisions they've made in their life to that point. Maybe it's a, you know, a way that they've used their summer. Maybe it's um, a couple of elective classes they've taken in high school, um, something that they've expressed interest in doing. Just trying to find some thread to pull on um, so that you, you can get a sense of a student's interest. And then from there, there you, you really there's a lot of different ways to th- think creatively about how to develop an interest, but I think you got to start with what are the interests. Mm-hmm. An example of that that I've seen, and this isn't really a non-traditional activity, but I think it felt non-traditional to this student, was a student of mine who was really interested in manga and anime. She just sort of discovered it, um, you know, in Barnes and Noble one day and took it from there. And, um, and as a result, she, she really had no other activities on her resume, but she joined the Asian Culture Club at her school. And she kind of, she wrote in her essay about being a blonde, um, blue-eyed girl in the Asian Culture Club, but she actually ended up even being an officer in it. She was a vice president um, and really, really loved it and gave lots of presentations and really found a community that Mm -hmm. way. So even though that's an in-school activity, I thought, well, this is something that had really surprised her and surprised most people when she told them about it. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that anecdote, too, is um, I think sometimes um, teachers, counselors, parents, and and frankly, sometimes the students themselves are quick to dismiss something that they're interested in as sort of not serious or or not something colleges would would value for some reason. And and I think, you know, within reason, um, whatever you might be interested in, it's not so much what you're interested in as what you do with it or, or how you develop it. And I think your example really illustrates that, that, that if we, if we had just told somebody that a student of yours was an officer in the Asian, Asian student association or Asian culture club, um, nobody probably would have guessed that was a student that started out high school without really any interest or, or activities. But knowing the origin of that really tells you a lot about, um, about where these things can go. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I don't think that you should do things because it'll make a good essay. But in her case, it really made actually an excellent essay that said a lot about her and how she was someone who really did follow her own interests in a really, in a very authentic sort of a way, um, which I, I thought was pretty cool. And she ended up, I was really pleased too, because she was a student who initially was pretty skeptical of the whole college process and ended up feeling really happy about the essay. And I think it sort of colored her approach to everything that she could be authentic and could be herself while she was yep. approaching it. So I think that's really true. And, and, you know, getting back to that question of will, will colleges actually value this stuff? I think if you've worked in admissions for, you know, probably more than a month, maybe more than a day, maybe even more than an hour, at some point you <laughs> get that question of what's the formula, right? Like what's the formula for getting in? And if somebody comes up with that formula, they're probably going to be very, very wealthy and, 
um, you know, have lots of people that, that want to talk to them. And I think most of us would agree there's really not a formula. What, what does help is, is both in an academic and, as we're discussing today, a non-academic sense, trying to, trying to get a sense of what the student's interested in and develop those and cultivate those interests. And um, I think the people that are really, really disappointed with this process at the back end feel like they've only made strategic decisions. They haven't made sort of more organic decisions. And, you know, especially when they feel like they've done that and still don't get the outcome they want, um, which is pretty predictable because sometimes those things that they do just for the sake of college end up being very hollow or um, not particularly meaningful. Whereas if you, if you make some decisions about the things that you want to do and develop your interests, you can really hopefully enjoy what you're doing and then also be able to speak with some, with some sincerity and, and maybe even some passion by the time you're a senior and you're, you're writing those applications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll flow really naturally. Um, do you, I mean, do you have some other examples of where students have really been able to follow an authentic interest into a, an activity that didn't seem so authentic, but, um, or, or didn't seem, that was seemed non-traditional, but ended up being just a great activity for them? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, and, and different anecdotes for, for different kinds of kids, as you would expect. Um, so I can think of a student who, um, you know, I think was going through a lot of development in her school experience. I think she was going through, like, like so many kids, was going through that process of kind of figuring out who her friends were going to be and, and figuring out what kind of a student she was going to be. And in this particular case, really wanted to become... A more, ser- a more serious student really, I think, wanted to make some conscious choices about her friend group, but still wanted to retain a lot of her interests. She was very artistic. She's done a lot with photography. Um, she's done a little bit of, with, like, fashion and modeling, and she's also really interested in film. And she just, I mean, she sort of just started organizing things around those interests. So she started having, hosting movie nights, and, you know, you'd sort of have different themes based on the people that were attending, and you know, somebody might host a, a kind of like a film noir night or another person might host a, a kung fu night or a western night, something like that. Um, she would organize photo shoots. And, I mean, I think what was interesting there, and this is where you see the social dynamic and the social impact of, of starting to get involved in different things, um, people who weren't even interested in photography just were her friends. And all of a sudden they're asking her questions about lighting and posing and um, kind of scenery and, and, and all those kinds of things that, that go into a photo shoot. Um, so she was kind of galvanizing a lot of the interest around, around the thing that she was interested. Um, and it just became a really positive process for her. She started to feel more confident in her interests. She started to feel like other people would gravitate or kind of magnetize toward these interests. And um, again, it was something that in a really tangible way, she, she ended up with some very compelling portfolios of her work. Um, she ended up being able to speak with, I think, more depth and um, experience about her film interest. And the, the kind of, I mean, she had a very cinematographic um, take on photography. A lot of her photos look sort of very much like scenes out of a movie. Um, so it was a nice melding there for, for in this case, a, a more artistic student. Um, but you could, you know, I could come up with some, I could give you some different anecdotes about kids that are involved in sports or kids um, that are interested in science. I mean, it really, again, I think it really starts with the origin of the interest and, and what the interest is. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I'm interested in hearing those, but I, I want to pluck out first something that was really important here, that this, 
young woman demonstrated leadership, even though she didn't have a traditional leadership title of president or captain or something like that. You know, but she was the one organizing the photo shoot. She was the one organizing the movie night. So whatever her title was, you know, I'm I'm sure she was able to get that across to the colleges. Um, Correct? You're, you're, you're so right. And I mean, I think that's, where this non-traditional part um, really comes in is that, is that even if you're not, just as you said, captain of X or Y or Z or president or officer, um, she clearly had demonstrated skills that maybe some folks that had sort of that, that position title that we think about um, may not have. I mean, she really, I mean, not only did she have to organize and, and sort of coordinate and, and lead these different things, but she, I mean, she did it completely from scratch. A, a lot of the in-school activities um, students are, are kind of piggybacking off the existing structures and kind of history of the club or whatever it might be. Um, so I, I think you're really right to highlight those, and, and certainly the college has responded um, favorably to, to all those attributes and, and the activities she's been involved in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good, good. Yeah, so give me another example in a, maybe in a non-arts um, arena. Okay, sure. Um, well, I had this great kid um, who I do this activity when I was a high school counselor, I used to do this activity where I would ask students how many different colleges they could name. And um, part of the activity was that most students couldn't name more than maybe 10, maybe 15. Occasionally a kid can name 20 different schools. And the rule was kind of, you know, you couldn't name University of X or Y, Z State. So, um, and I also said, okay, let's try to get away from some of what we would call the usual suspect schools, you know, the highly selective schools that everybody's heard of. Um, so, so it was a way of kind of showing kids that, hey, there are two, three, four thousand schools out there, and you can really only name a few. Um, but I had one kid who, I mean, he was just rattling off places you wouldn't believe. Bemidji State, Prairie View A&M. I mean, I think, and I kind of started figuring out that he was a NCAA sports fanatic, just an absolute mm-hmm. fanatic. He could, he could not only name the team, he could name their mascot, he could name the stadium they played in. Um, and he also was uh, more of a quantitative kid. Um, you know, I wouldn't say he was, you know, a math nut or anything like that, but he was certainly a little bit more quantitative and became very friendly with um, a stats teacher at the high school who shared a lot of his interests in NCAA sports, I think that's kind of how they got the talking. That teacher, I think, had been maybe an Ohio State football fan. Um, and so the two of them together started thinking about designing a, what they would call a bot, like an algorithm, like a robot, to make predictions of, of NCAA games. And around March, when you know, mo- anybody that's working in high school knows that all the students are going crazy filling out their tournament brackets, these guys organized a competition to see who could submit the most accurate bracket and how many people could actually beat their, their bot, their algorithm for, for, um, for accuracy. And it just, it became a school-wide event. I mean, it's something that still goes on. And I think a lot of people had a lot of fun with it. Again, it, it, it showed a lot of organizational skills. It certainly showed some of his quantitative skills. He got to leverage a lot of his, you know, what I thought, you know, what I think he probably considered sort of trivial NCAA knowledge, but it became useful to him. Um, so I think anytime you know you've got a kid that loves to spend this time thinking about and kind of getting involved in something, that's a really good indicator that that there might be a way to develop that into something um, interesting and fun. And again, in this case, it was great for the whole school. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I had a student who was um, who was very interested in music and in popular music, and he was in a band, and you know, so he ended up organizing at school a battle of the bands with the local high schools. You know, and it, the same kind of thing. It ended up being a big school wide event and sort of really successful. Um, you know, and this was a kid. You know, he was just. He was a kid who walks in who you kind of think that guy, that kid probably is a musician. You know, he just like exuded that sort of musician cool. So he, he, he probably, he was, a, and he was a friendly outgoing kid, but he, he was going to want to do something non-traditional. And he came up with this idea, you know, on his own. I mean, he might've heard about it from someone else, but so yeah. how, yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No. Yeah. I think, I think, I think that story is, is, in some way, shape, or form, a lot like how all these how all these activities come together. I can think of a kid that was a history, a real history buff who sung Civil War ballads at the talent competitions, you know, every other month or whatever it was. And one of the things I think is that students just don't they just don't feel like they 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 perceive there to be some barrier, you know, that that why why would people want to do this with me or you know why would somebody hire me to be an intern at that museum or why would somebody hire my band to to play gigs and and you kind of just got to get past that initial, um, you know, the, the list of reasons you've come up with why w- something wouldn't work and just go out and try to do it. And um, especially what I've seen is that when people have an interest in high school and they're, they're kind of courageous enough to go and try to get other people interested in it and go do something with it, you know, maybe some people snicker at it at first, but once it's, once it's interesting and it's rolling and it's fun and a lot of people are behind it, then all of a sudden, you know, that, that kid's pretty cool and, and he's got something going for himself. And, um, so it, it can really, it can really be very positive in a number of ways, uh, including college, but certainly beyond. Mm-hmm. One thing I think that's clear from all of these anecdotes and that you, this, I'm just kind of, I think, underlining what you just said is that you have to be intrepid enough to go and try different things that all of these students probably had to get past some barrier where they thought that their interest wasn't going to be interesting to other people or people might make fun of them or, you know, there might be a failure along the way. They all had to get past that because there was no well-laid path. And, uh, but it worked for them. Yep. I think, I think you put the, head, the nail on the head. I think being intrepid, um, being enterprising, resourceful, which, you know, really when schools, when colleges value those leadership positions, it's not because you were named president of something or captain of something. It's because they, they think it's a proxy for these other skills that we're talking about that, that really there's lots of different pathways to acquiring those skills and developing them. Um, so I think you hit the nail on the head, especially with that word intrepid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this has been super helpful and a really enjoyable conversation. So thanks so much, Peter. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sally. Thank you. All right, we're going to take another short break, but then we'll be discussing how financial aid can differ from state to state. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back for our third and final segment. While not all of you will be applying for financial aid, you might still want to listen to Kathy Ruby, college finance expert, who will be here to tell us about how financial aid can differ from state to state. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Sally. Nice to be here. All right. So let's start with the nitty gritty. What kind of aid um, do, do states provide for higher education? Well, so states, as you can imagine, vary from, you know, what they offer varies from state to state. Um, the first and most obvious benefit they offer for higher education, of course, is is in-state tuition for residents, right, at public universities. So that's that's kind of obvious. But it turns out they've got a variety of other kinds of aid that they offer, and I kind of like to divide them into categories. Um, so before college, some states have tax incentives to encourage people to save for college, either in their own state's 529 plan or, or just to save for college in general. So there's before college. And then there's during college. Many, many states offer scholarships and grants. Sometimes they're need-based, and sometimes they're merit-based, and sometimes they're both. Um, and then states will also participate in reciprocity programs with other states. Um, some states have student loan programs for students either attending college in that state or residents of the state. Um, and then there are even some other kinds of just quirky kinds of programs. For instance, Texas has a rebate program. If you get through a Texas public university in a in a in a record amount of time without attempting more than, I think, three credits beyond what's required, um, they'll actually give you a $1,000 rebate at the end mm. of your four-year um, education. Mm. Um, so quite a bit is available during, during college. And then after college, there can be loan forgiveness programs that are out there for education and for health professions. Um, so it just depends on the state. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. 
Yeah, I know. I have never heard of a rebate program. So that's <laughs> Texas 20. has lots of lots of different kinds of programs, but that's that's one of the more interesting ones. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, let's talk about during college first, since that's okay. what most of our listeners are probably interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about saving and loan forgiveness at the end of our conversation. When it comes to applying for state grants and scholarships and loans, how does that happen? Well, um, so for need-based grants, um, it varies by state, but pretty much every state requires the FAFSA, you know, the free application for federal student aid, which you're filling out anyway, right, to be considered for institutional need-based aid and for federal need-based aid. So it turns out that when you complete the FAFSA, um, you know, when you complete the FAFSA, you list all the schools that you want to receive the information. And without listing it at all, your state will automatically, your state higher education agency will automatically receive the results of the FAFSA because you're a resident of that state. So um, that happens behind the scenes. You don't, you don't know that it's happening. Um, however, there is one, one, th- one little detail to be aware of. Um, when you're listing schools on the FAFSA, when you're on that screen, um, it doesn't matter what order you list the schools in for the most part, except that um, states, there are some states that want you to list an in-state uh, public or private school first on the list. And so in the instructions on the FAFSA, it tells you that. It says some states want you to list an in-state school first, and it actually will bring you to a website that will tell you whether or not your state requires that. Um, So that's the first thing is you have to do the FAFSA, and if you need to, you need to list an in-state school first. Um, And then you really have to just um, uh, check to see if anything else is required. And, And actually just about that FAFSA, most states have deadlines that are um, as early as March 1st, um, and some states even have a first-come, first-serve kind of thing going on with their grants and scholarships, so the sooner after January 1st that you can do your FAFSA, the better. Um, and then some states require additional information, like a transcript or some kind of a form that conveys your academic record. For instance, in California, there's something called the GPA verification form. So you just have to check with your state or with your high school guidance office to know if there's other things um, required. And then lastly, the merit-based kinds of scholarships, like in Georgia, it's the HOPE Scholarship, and in Florida, there's the Bright Futures Program. Um, Those kinds of programs often have specific classes that you have to have taken or you have to have done a certain amount of community service, whatever it might be. So some of these programs, it's important to know about them as early as ninth grade so that you're sure that your student takes the right classes and um, is doing the right things to qualify. And Mm -hmm. those are for the merit-based kinds of state scholarships. Okay. Um, and where can people learn about these programs and requirements? I mean, it's it's great to hear about them, but you know, where where does somebody start? Yeah, it's it's not um, well. It's just a matter of searching for them, I guess. Um, so most states have higher education agencies, so you can just do a web search and you know put your state name in and type in higher education agency. Another great website is actually the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators. So NASFA for short. So it's Nancy, Apple, Sam, Frank, Apple, Apple, NASFA.org. And if you go to that website, um, there's a, uh, one of the tabs is for students, parents, and counselors. 
And from there, you can actually, it'll bring you to a map of the United States, and then you can click on your state, and it will bring you right to the higher education agency in your state. Um, Your high school guidance office can also be a good resource because lots of times state agencies um, put out brochures and all kinds of other things um, for uh, students and parents. So your, your guidance office will have those resources. And then you can also explore the websites of the colleges that you're looking at because um, embedded in the financial aid office websites, there's usually a category called types of aid. And within the grants and loans, there's always information about state programs for, for um, that particular state. So you got to yeah. pull it together from a variety of places. Sure. Yeah, it's true. When I, I worked at Whittier College in California, and we really made sure that every student applied for the Cal Grant if they, you know, applied to us on time. Yeah, And we were like, absolutely. you will apply for Cal Grant. It is a good source of aid. So. Well, and in California, California is a great example. I mean, they have, they have the Cal Grant, which is a traditional need-based grant, but they've even sort of expanded it into a program called the Middle Class Scholarship, which is awarded to families who make less than $150,000 a year and have less than $150,000 in assets. So um, they've really expanded their programs, and so it's important to, to learn about those and take advantage of them. You don't want to mm-hmm. miss those deadlines. The deadlines really matter for states. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so do you have to stay in state to use most state financial aid programs? Um, usually, yes. So when it comes to grants and scholarships from states, usually you have to attend um, either a public university or, or many times a private college in the state. Um, there are a couple of states. I'm thinking Vermont is one. Um, there's another one, but I can't remember who it is, where um, at least last I knew you could take the money elsewhere, although it usually wasn't as large an amount as if you had stayed in state. Um, mm-hmm. But most of the time you have to stay in state to use a scholarship or a grant from a state. And of course that makes sense, right? Because the state is investing in its residents in order to, because this is all about, all of the things that states do is about their own economic situation. And so they're trying to encourage people to stay in state and stay in the state to go to school, stay in the state to work. Um, so they want you to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to state loans, um, and there are, I'm trying to think, I don't have an exact number of states, but there are several states who have pretty good interest rate loans for students. They usually require a cosigner, um, but they're usually fairly competitive loans for, um, for students. Um, many times with state loans, they do allow you to go out of state. If you're a resident, you know, and then you're attending college in a different state, they'll still let you use the program. That's not true everywhere. I think Texas has a state loan and they, they don't let you use it if you're leaving the state. But most states do let you use it elsewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're right. I mean, it, it does make sense. They're, you're pumping economic. Um, I mean, universities are a big source of economic vitality for states. Right. I don't think people realize the extent to which that's true. Yeah, and that, uh, that really, I mean, that gets to, you know, just the question of being a resident in a state. I mean, that's why most, most states make it pretty difficult for you to just switch residency when you get there to get in-state tuition. I mean, that, that in-state tuition is a pretty big way that... Um, that states support higher education because, of course, it costs much more than that tuition to actually educate students. Mm-hmm. And so states are subsidizing, 
universities, um, public universities, and helping them keep tuition low. And in, in fact, in Washington State, they've even been um, reducing tuition mm-hmm. um, going forward. They were, they froze it, and now they're trying to they're trying to control the increases, and that certainly takes state support to do that. Yeah, that's remarkable. Um, well, what about reciprocity programs and regional tuition exchanges? So um, on the NASFA website, um, there is a section there um, as well. In addition to the map of states, there's also a section that outlines some regional exchange programs. So regions will often get together and come up with a reciprocity kind of program between a group of states. Now, for those, I mean, you have to read pretty carefully to find out if your state actually participates because for some reason, sometimes states are listed as being a member of an exchange when, in fact, they're not currently granting granting waivers to people to students from other states. Um, so there are regional exchanges, and then sometimes states will have just individual agreements with other states. So Minnesota, Wisconsin, is an example of that. Um, when you're when you're looking into those, I mean, they're a great they're a great um, resource for some students. And it should be part of the college planning process. So in other words, don't assume that it's going to happen. The way they usually work, or many times they work, is that you're not automatically a part of an exchange. Sometimes maybe it's that your state doesn't offer the particular program. Um, So for instance, if you're going to study psychology and it's offered in your state, then you may not be eligible for a way of the reciprocity program versus if you're going into a very specific program that's not offered in your state, that will make it more likely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what about after college? So after college, um, many states, again, getting back to states are trying to serve their residents. um, Many states have loan forgiveness programs um, or loan cancellation programs or whatever you want to call them for certain professions, whatever it is that they might need in certain areas, whether it's, you know, certain health professionals in shortage areas, which tend to be rural areas, but not always, um, or maybe even teachers. Um, and, and these kinds of things you want to be aware of as you're planning, um, you know, what, what your career might be and where you might want to continue whatever it is you're going to do in your career. So, um, Check that out at the state level as well. Not only the state you live in, but maybe a state you might want to go live in. <laughs> mm-hmm. That might make it more attractive to go live in a state. And that's exactly why the states do it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and what are some tax incentives um, for saving for college? So now we're way back before you've even gone to college. And so as parents are saving for college, as they're... Um, as they're choosing between 529 plans, which are administered by states, and you, when you're saving in a 529 plan, you do not have to choose your state's plan necessarily. But sometimes states will provide tax incentives or state tax deductions um, for contributions to a 529 plan in your state. There are actually a few states as well who will even give you a state tax deduction if you contribute to any 529 plan. So they're just trying to encourage college savings. They don't care if you do it in their state or not. Um, So check those out for sure as you're choosing um, a 529 plan. Find out if your state offers that state tax deduction. Um, But the one thing to be careful of is if later on you end up not using the money for college, you may have to pay back that tax break that you got. So you've got to keep that in mind 
as you're thinking about that. Okay. All right, great. Well, this was, this was really helpful. So thank you so much, Kathy. You're welcome. Okay. All right. And thank you to the rest of my guests today, too. Um, I wanted to let you know that we have a great lineup for next week's show that I want to tell you about. Uh, Beth Heaton will be returning as your host, and she'll be discussing with uh, a fellow educational expert um, how to research colleges so that you can, you know, develop your list of colleges that you'll be applying to. Um, And then even more exciting, she and an admission and a financing college specialist will be answering your questions. So definitely call in. Um, And finally, just a reminder that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. So get in there and check out the archives. Um, The other thing, too, by the way, is sometimes people have trouble finding us. If all of you out there who are listening, if you think we're great, please enter a rating and and let us know, and that'll make it easier for other people to find us, too. Um, And I did also want to let you know, in terms of the archives, um, the last two weeks, our admissions experts have discussed the new coalition application, extracurricular activities for students interested in writing in English, and even um, extracurricular activities for those interested in video games. Um, Also, of course, we're very happy if you listen to us live, um, and we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Music.